Hello everybody, um, I'm Andy Colthorpe, editor with Energy Storage News, part of Solar Media, uh, which we'll, I guess we'll introduce to you briefly as we go along. Joining me today on our podcast is Liam Stoker, UK editor extraordinaire. I wonder uh, that far. Well, at Solar Media, not for you to say I suppose, <laughs> but we certainly can Liam. So, um, And yeah, of course today uh, every reason to emphasise your starring role because we are talking UK at the moment. So yes. Liam, you're the editor with Current and with Solar Power Portal. I'm indeed. And the UK's experienced a at least once in a decade blackout a couple of weeks ago. Um, so you've been looking into that, we'll be looking at the roles, how that plays into the clean energy space, the energy market in general, and of course from my selfish point of view, battery storage and sort of the role that plays. Uh, take it away. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, being quite an interesting time to report on the UK power sector not least just because of the blackout but it was very much the, the cherry on the top in the last kind of fortnight or so um, pretty much from August 9th uh, evening just before rush hour um, the lights went out for about 1.1 million people uh, like you said Andy for the first time in about just over 10 years um, National Grid have since been scurrying around looking at technical detailed reports and trying to find out what the cause was and on Monday we got our first glimpse of what they'd actually found um, and if I can I just use this expression it was a perfect storm perfect storm if you will perfect storm. and actually lightning played not to, not to be flippant about you know it was quite a serious <laughs> event obviously yeah um, but lightning played you know um, lightning played a role from what I hear it was a under four minutes of actual power cut, um, but obviously a lot of people experienced that, and it included chaos on roads and trains as well. Um, so do you want to just, yeah, I mean, so what actually happened when, so it wasn't just the case that lightning struck the grid and the grid went down, there's a little bit more to it than that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the report itself, it, the preliminary report, um, we should say, the actual report's not due for another couple of weeks, but essentially what National Grid has said has happened is that lightning struck uh, a piece of the a piece of the grid um, and that lightning was actually handled fairly ordinarily everything okay. went according to plan at least according to National Grid anyway uh-huh. um, but what followed was two subsequent failures at um, a gas plant operated by RWE mm-hmm. and an offshore wind farm operated by Orsted. Those failures, National Grid said, aren't connected, but happened within seconds of each other, which sent about, um, well, in total, 1.4 gigawatts came off the grid, but that includes roughly 500 megawatts. No, sorry, that was in addition to 500 megawatts of embedded generation, so right, okay. local... Um, home solar installs, that kind of thing. And so, you know, the question that's been asked is that why wasn't the grid sort of prepared for this? So it hit the transmission grid and then ultimately part of the distribution grid had to be cut off. Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, it, the lightning hit the, the transmission grid um, or a piece of transmission, transmission grid infrastructure. Mm. Um, and it's not so much that the grid wasn't prepared for that. Mm. Um, it's that with 1.4 gigawatts coming off the system within seconds of each other, mm-hmm. National Grid is legally obliged to only have one gigawatt in reserve. And right. that's designed very much because the UK's largest single generator is still 
size well be. Which right, is so one, nuclear. One, yeah, yeah, yeah one point exactly. two, I think, one point two. Like that. Yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah. questions can be asked about whether that level of reserve is now sufficient, mm-hmm. and everyone's asking that question. National Grid will have to answer that mm-hmm. um, by the end by the end of this kind of reporting period. But uh-huh. um, certainly, from what we've got or from what we've heard from speaking to people in the industry and, and looking at some of the responses is that yeah okay this is a preliminary report but it's actually throwing up more questions uh, than answers at the moment and mm-hmm. um, National Grid are taking a very stern line in that their protocols and, and their systems worked it, it prevented a more large scale issue Okay. Um, and they seem to have heaped a lot of the Scrutiny onto the failure mechanisms at the at these two plants, which came off the grid. So it'd be interesting to see what comes out of the uh, more technical reports that are coming, um, especially after they've had some input from both the RWE and Allstead. Okay, so l- l- let's go into the like the the uh, the failure mechanism stuff, maybe a bit later, or you know, I guess that's still very much under investigation. But one thing that kind of struck me is quite interesting looking at the preliminary reports and obviously your, your really good blog on, on the subsequent response. I mean, firstly was the fact that it is in itself uh, an extremely rare event, National Grid said. So they deal with a thousand uh, lightning strikes a year, apparently, on the grid. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they said themselves there was a, yeah. a load of lightning strikes. A- able day. to cope with it, right? Um, but... As rare as it is, it does throw into relief a certain amount of risk associated with running a network that is trying to quickly decentralise and obviously add a lot of renewables and so on. So you've got a lot of different things kind of being balanced sort of within that grid. So I think in the piece that you wrote, um, you quoted some kind of views... from. Okay, so let's go into the kind of what the response was and what the reaction was because... I believe there was quite a lot of batteries, something like 475 megawatts in total came online. So, yeah, I mean, from what you've seen, kind of, as you say, kind of National Grid touted how quickly they were able to respond. Um, And, you know, we've got some numbers in that blog and and so on. But, um, yeah, so both domestic and grid-scale batteries called into action. Yeah. um, If once you look at... so. I, I always found like the best thing to look at here is some of the, the frequency graphs that show the, the initial drop down to 48.8 hertz and um, when the batteries start to get cooled in. Mm. Um, like you say, roughly 475 megawatts and that includes uh, both utility and domestic scale batteries that were cooled into action, which is interesting in itself. But mm. these are the kinds of batteries, so obviously National Grid has a 200 megawatt strong fleet of enhanced frequency response, which sub-second response to a lot of these incidents. Sure. Um, then you've got other batteries that, that are kind of primed to respond to these events as well. So mm. 475 megawatts of battery storage for the UK is a not insignificant amount. So having that kind of respond and, and do everything that battery storage has said that it can do mm-hmm. in this really really exemplary case of preventing a, a much what, what could have been a, a much longer outage or a more significant outage mm-hmm. and demonstrating their value is, is really good to see right yeah and uh, I mean you mentioned the 200 megawatts of EFR batteries and you know I think regular readers to both of our sets of sites 
will know that the UK was one of the earlier uh, countries to kind of procure those uh, fast-acting, fast-responding assets for um, enhanced frequency response. So there's that. And then at the moment, we're really in a state of flux in terms of how National Grid's going to um, get all of its other grid services. And, you know, I guess people who've been reading the sites for a while will see that, you know, we've been deploying these kind of batteries for precisely not just this kind of scenario, but kind of the scenarios that might get increasingly common on the grid, really, I guess. Yeah, I mean, nationally, like you mentioned, National Grid is pretty much in a state of flux itself about what it's going to do next. Mm. Um, they're undergoing this massive simplification of their balancing services. I think there's something like 29 products, or there were 29 products mm. that National Grid operated. It wants to massively reduce that and have a far simpler core of products which should make it a lot easier for battery storage operators and aggregators and, and everyone of that mm-hmm. of that like to kind of contribute okay. um, and it, it's just a case of wait and see for what National Grid kind of introduced really okay. I think this has demonstrated that that one gigawatt of reserve capacity probably isn't enough for mm-hmm. a change in energy system so like, you can imagine that that might increase as one of the, one of the results of this mm-hmm. um, there's been talk about uh, had some interesting insight from a couple of aggregators which now think there needs to be a market for inertia which is really interesting in itself Uh Um, that's going to be quite a pivotal topic of this continuing investigation and I gather you know I'm not a PhD level engineer in this as our readers probably know but um, this is again something that uh, someone from I think Fluence blogged for us for a a while ago actually about how uh, inertia can be provided to the grid again using batteries yeah. better than fossil fuels can do it yeah 100% at the moment. Um, and, yeah. that was uh, it's been quite a common thing um, I know Lime Jump have been um, quite progressive in what, in what they're calling for in terms of the market that you can derive this kind of inertia not just from batteries but from um, the kind of renewable generators which aren't which aren't commonly associated with coming taking a natural out of the grid but mm-hmm. you can add that through um, through the inverter so that, that's a really interesting kind of point of conversation as well um, but I think what, one of the big one of the big topics for us mm. certainly looking at the, at the blackout is that despite what the Daily Mail might have said despite what a couple of other unscrupulous politicians might have tried to lobby at renewables that renewables didn't actually cause it nor right, did they contribute right, right. I mean that's exactly it. what happened when you had the South Australia blackouts of uh, I think 2017 I think it was um, and you had wind power being blamed but actually turned out to be and you guys can look this up obviously on the site because uh, I'm doing this off the top of my memory but it turned out to not be the wind farms turned out to be problems with the grid itself Yes, uh, and, and as a result of that, yeah, the famously Tesla deployed, and more on Tesla later, Tesla deployed a 129 megawatt hour grid scale resource at a wind farm that you know actually buffers um, some of the power and helps regulate the grid. If we just take a second here, actually, and just open it up a little bit for our international listeners, because a lot of you in the states obviously know National Grid uh, for its regulated utility work there. It also has some. Uh, transmission assets there but it's uh, it runs on a different basis to what it does in the UK so um, Liam if you wouldn't mind just giving us a second on this 
uh, yeah. national. So it was actually through the National Grid's electricity system operator. Yeah, that so this report came out of. Yeah, so just briefly for our international guys and a refresher for me as well. <laughs> mind. Oh, this just as much for me. It changes every day. Okay. Um, yeah, essentially, National Grid have undergone something of a legal separation um, as part of Ofgem's work into okay. how the. So they were running the whole transmission network in the UK as a transmission they were they, they were running both under the same house so to speak right. Um, right. and now you have National Grid Electricity Transmission which looks at or looks after the pylons and and cables and, and the mm-hmm. whole the whole transmission network mm-hmm. itself whereas the system the electricity system operator um, the NG ESO unit is very much all about looking after the system from it, as a system of task of daily running yeah exactly yeah, okay, the, okay. the daily Operation the grid of the system itself. Okay. So this is very much in the ESO's ballpark. Cool. All right. So if we're bringing it back to, so I think some of the people have been uh, that you've spoken to this week, uh, including aggregators, like you just mentioned, have proposed kind of different market designs and sort of different uh, different ways of paying for these grid balancing products and different grid balancing products. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess a question from outside the UK might be, well, why can't all this just be done on a on a market basis? And sort of what's the role of the regulator in the UK? Because, you know, I think as we'll see in a minute, um, outside of the UK, obviously, jurisdictional issues and things like that and regulation, definition, things like that are really having a big... big yeah, I mean, I th- the big thing that Ofgem, which is the, the industry regulator in the UK, is pinning its the bulk of its investigation on mm. is to whether or not um, National Grid or any of the DNOs have um, violated or not held up their licensing. Okay. Um, so for international listeners, the, the way that the grid is operated in the UK, it's very much done by, um, it's, they're essentially regulated monopolies. So there is no competition on the grid for obvious re- or competition to run the grid for obvious reasons mm-hmm. um, and then the DNOs have this license to operate the grid infrastructure and, and, and charge and distribution yeah, yeah and, and yeah. charge uh, people for using it mm-hmm. but to have their license they have to meet certain obligations and one of those is to ensure that the lights stay on for obvious reasons mm-hmm. but it's difficult to see whether or not any party would have broken their license conditions on, on, on this thing. Okay. The one thing that the DNOs have been criticised for in some quarters is how they went about disconnecting demand. So you have these... Um, so you mean in this particular part? In, yeah, yeah. So it's in, like a million customers end up getting cut off the justification given was that that prevented the other 95% of the grid yeah. from losing power. And it's, 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 it's a really curious thing because you have this, the grid frequency dips to such an extent that mm-hmm. it that demand needs to be taken off, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense. And the DNOs have this, this protocol, which is the low frequency demand disconnection protocol, or LFDD. Mm-hmm. And for want of a better term or to save some time it essentially acts as a priority list for what parts of the network get or what parts of demand can keep up okay but where this seems to have fallen down is that you had stories of people getting trapped on the tube mm. the Victoria line just went 
the, all the lights went out and the train stopped. You had people calling tunnels. Mm. Um, Newcastle Airport lost power. Um, Luton Hospital also lost power, but that seems to have been a unrelated or not as unrelated an issue as you can get to the demand disconnection. But that's oh, okay. one of, I would imagine, another area which could easily change. Right, 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 right. So that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, a hospital, obviously, that's a crit- you know, critical load, really. That's, yeah. that's not something you want to see disconnected under any circumstances, sure. right? Obviously. So, wow. Okay. And I mean, I guess, you know, when it gets to that level and you get to really distributed level, um, God, there's a big topic, really. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, um, we've got as long as the listeners uh, will keep listening to us, hopefully. Another two minutes. Another two minutes. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening so far, though. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of touches on the role of backup power, you know, as, yeah. as things become more decentralised. And while the much bigger piece, I think, is the role of batteries directly on the grid... Uh, both on transmission and distribution level to stop the grid from falling down then at more distributed level the value of storage and solar and stuff also comes into whether you can back up those loads and keep running hospitals in the event that things do need to get disconnected so yeah so let's just look at quickly at kind of what this has to do with in general renewables clean energy and batteries shall we so I mean in terms of the, if you don't mind me going first with the battery response, because I guess that is kind of what we're, you know, du jour, Very much du jour really, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. Well, and also topical in, in this instance, so I'll jump on it really, I suppose. I mean, there's two things. There's the, the really big batteries that got involved, um, the ones that were, you know, large scale, 40 foot containers, megawatt hours and, you know, per, per installation. Uh, but then also something that we've been kind of vocal about the potential of for the last few years and has only just you know started to get there is kind of virtual power plants sure aggregating together domestic batteries i mean virtual power plant is also more than just a fancy way of saying a lot of connected energy systems right because um you can aggregate together lots of residential systems just so that people can trade their electricity which is a great thing obviously um you can trade your surplus solar energy if your neighbour doesn't have energy, then they can use yours. But then on the other hand, a virtual power plant is something that basically plays more of a role that's closer to what a fossil fuel plant would have done in balancing the grid yeah, yeah, in the past. So, yeah, I mean, one thing that I noticed, again, stand out from your blog this week um, is that Social Energy. Um, yeah, aggregate, yeah, really interesting company. Yeah, aggregator of domestic batteries. Um, they're a electric utility supplier, but they're also a virtual power plant company. So they have a fleet running um, on the grid, and they detected the incident within 200 milliseconds of it occurring. And you know, you've got little graphs um, and so on. So, so that's the thing, really. I mean, I guess one of the really big questions is though, virtual power plants sound great. Um, National Grid deploying all of these things through tenders and stuff is strategically sounds great um, but kind of from a consumer and installer level how is that going to then get deployed, marketed and installed and then if we're looking at things like net zero energy ambitions for the country how do we make sure that those sort of fleets of units are combined in you know the most optimised way really for the grid I suppose and yeah I mean net zero is in itself a hugely hugely dense topic which is probably some way down the UK's priority list I'd yeah, say pretty unfortunate just yeah. about yeah um, 
it's it's a really it's a really odd one because we have this. I mean, it was Theresa May's last act in office was to, right. or essentially her last act in office was to enshrine this net zero target into law and just kind of chucked it into Boris's lap and said, "Here, this is an extra thing to deal with, and you can barely deal with Brexit." So, right, you have this massively, massively important target, which is, yeah, it's thirty-one years away, mm-hmm. but it's 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 the kind of thing that needs work done now I mean you look at some of the Committee on Climate Change's reports on net zero and they're talking about a huge huge increase in renewable power throughout the 2020s right the 2020 start next year from a technology point of view as well you know power plant you want to not just technology but financially you want to be planning a power plant over 30 years Oh, well, so it should have already started been building next week, really, you know. Yeah, exactly. Get there. And this is this is this is something which has come out of some other work that we've done, which we're going to be reporting on uh-huh. on current in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. Mm. But speaking to a lot of flexibility providers, and this is this is where the DMOs come in again. Electricity flexibility for the energy network for the energy networks, yeah. and that's this is at, this is at a distribution grid level. Mm-hmm. In the UK, the, these DNOs are now tendering for this flexibility because they see it as, as not just a hugely important part of the network, but can also be cheaper than kind of standard engineering, chucking in a huge transmission system or, or um, other piece of grid infrastructure. Mm. And they're coming, they're coming up with these tenders, mm-hmm. which are for six months, 12 months, 18 months' time. All of these flexibility providers are going, well, yeah, that's great, mm. but we need this visibility two years, three years, four years down the line. Right. Oh, so we, you're we, saying it's short, too short term. It's too short. Right, 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 right. Speak, speak to any kind of company that's looking into p- putting together a financial business plan for mm. a battery, mm. that's not going to happen. Yeah. It, it, it takes time to do that. And then you're looking, by the time you get a business plan, you've got to appoint a contractor, you've got to find technology, you've got to sort the lease with the landowner, you've got mm. to talk to the DNO and get that all connected. And it's, mm. it's just far too short. So these kind of barriers are, are things which it just seems at the moment that the industry is just primed and ready to go and it, it knows yeah. what it's doing, but yeah. there's still a lot and, of red tape. I mean, I think the short contracts thing is kind of endemic, uh, what with it partly being a new technology. So, yeah. I mean, like a lot of these, so this week we've been looking at virtual power plants in Australia, which has been hugely ambitious in terms of numbers. Um, and I think AGL, one of the biggest utilities there, has just rolled out a virtual power plant to most of the country, or a lot of the states of the country, which is great. Um, the financial benefit is fairly modest to the consumer, it's about $280 for the first year, but it's a one-year contract, it's a 12-month contract, so yeah. we pre- you presume it will get renewed the year after that, but it's a very short contract, you know, and that's... That's happened in grid scale storage as well, and and business plans can't work. If you, yeah. you try telling your financier that yeah. you presume that your contract's going to get renewed, right? They're just not going to. Right. Yeah. Buy. And you know, and, and one one market that was touted in the US a few years ago was uh, PJM. Yeah. So you probably you know you probably looked into this in, in a fair bit yourself, but they changed the rules there that products on standby for reserve for their capacity market have to have more than ten hours. Right. Duration, which is you've seen the derating yeah. in the UK and what that did. Ten hours is, <laughs> yeah. is beyond. Yeah, yeah. that's out, kind of out of the question for a lot of people. So, again, rules can change pretty quickly, really. I suppose, and and so some level of coordination, um, 
needs to be implemented, but then how do you balance coordinating things centrally versus decentralizing and decarbonizing energy? You know, that's yeah. that's kind of the it's, difficult it's, one, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit of a down note. Yeah, I mean, we can move on if you want to get past it. Let, let's, let's continue the down, downward stream. Well, let's talk about Tesla. All right, well, let's just do a couple. Okay, so let's get through a couple more things on this on this backup power. So I want to kind of bring things into a bit more of a, of a positive. So as you say, the, the network products from National Grid are coming out. Could be an improvement. Yeah, 100%. We don't know. They're, they're engaging with the industry to a greater extent. Um, and you know things we're looking at internationally I mean it's not just the UK that's struggling with the market design side of things I think so it's talking with a US based lawyer at the moment so um, FERC order 841 so FERC is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and it's applicable to 49 of the 50 US states broadly speaking you know some, some other issues within that now FERC Order 841 instructs the US uh, distribution companies and uh, electricity sector to find ways that energy storage can compete in wholesale markets. So that would be for grid, you know, for various services. So it doesn't mean that um, dedicated tender have to be launched per product. They can play into the whole wholesale market. So things like that kind of market design could be hugely transformative because at the moment in the US you've got as I understand it, a lot of storage is going in on a case-by-case basis, and then you've got a lot of storage going in paired with solar that's basically providing uh, power purchase agreements. So solar being sold as, as it would conventionally, yeah. and then other services added later. Now, at the moment, there isn't really a mechanism to get things deployed on a widespread scale uh, that would reward storage for all of the different things it can do on a market basis. Yeah, sure. So FERC Order 841 is the sort of thing that could be transformational and we'll be looking pretty closely at that um, as things pan out. And then the problem there we're seeing uh, now is that there's been some pushback that some of the states see that they don't want to be overseen federally by one uh, body for the whole of the states kind of thing, you know. Sure, so sure. so that's going to that's gonna play out and play out. Um and we'll just have to see see where that goes, really. Um, so it's not just the UK that these kind of transformative things are taking place. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, there's Australia, there's Japan that's deregulating its energy market. Um, everything's changing pretty pretty rapidly, really. I guess. Um, so yeah. I don't know if that's any more positive than where we're going because I think I'm just referring to a lot of challenges there. I think I think that's that's the tends to be the gist of every discussion you have. You have, you have this kind of really really positive discussion about the direction of the industry and mm. there are business cases coming out left right and centre. There are mm. interesting projects coming in. We've got hybrids going in here, there, and everywhere. Mm. Um, and then it just all seems to be. A little bit more red tape after every mm. every hurdle. So, mm. I mean, the industry needs to be commended for really, really putting together, or really putting together this really collaborative effort to, to get past the red tape. But it's an unavoidable thing, and you, you just kind of hope that it's emerging from that from that space now. Sure, sure. And I mean, I guess yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot to do with strategically looking at the aims of the grid 
in terms of a resilience standpoint, and then also looking at the grid from a decarbonisation standpoint. Sure. Um, you know, one thing that if we've got a little bit more time to, to give on this one, I think, is... Why not? Uh, yeah, I think it'd be nice to bring it down to the domestic level a little bit, because we talked about sort of the futuristic capabilities of virtual power plants, which is great. Yeah. Um, this week I've been speaking with um, FlexiOrb, which is the, uh, see if I get this one right without looking it up, Flexible Energy Oversight and Registration Body, yeah. I think it yeah, is. We, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Point talking to, to Faisal Hussein there this week, and he's referring to, let's face it, there was a lot of, and you know, I don't think this is just anecdotal, so I think it's fair to say this mis-selling yeah. in the solar market um, especially around things like inverter replacements and upgrades yeah, we'll and, yeah and people weren't and from what I hear of it and I'm not going to name names because I think we could get ourselves in a bit of trouble here but you the legal I, I think yeah I think financiers are basically on the hook for promises made by installers I think that's fair to say we've heard of this yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and you know again that's, that's something else you can look up but what we're really trying to trying to do is avoid this happening in energy storage and of course avoid it happening in solar going forward so um yeah i mean something like the oversight registration body is one way to do that yeah um and the other thing we've seen that it's a precarious business you know so i think 50 percent of the mcs micro generation scheme installers from five years ago are now out of business yeah i mean this is so the, the this is effectively a long-lasting issue mm. which has beset the UK market for pretty much four years now mm. and certainly as long as I've been at Solar Media so I joined God, this is going to be uh, I joined you're just in, a boy you're just a boy <laughs> just a boy yeah. Um, yeah. pretty much uh, March 2015 mm-hmm. so just as the general election campaign was uh, starting to bubble. Okay. Um, Conservatives swept to a... Seems like a very different time. <laughs> different, completely different <laughs> very time. Very different time. Um, yeah, yeah Conservatives swept to what was a pretty, I have to say, pretty surprise victory, mm-hmm. uh, for a majority anyway, mm-hmm. and proceeded to just swing an axe at anything that they didn't deem critical and... Mm-hmm a lot of green subsidies and support schemes ended up in, in their way and, it was and an infamous off the record comment about green crap I don't think yeah, reported. yeah we don't even know if that was true but it certainly it certainly I mean it's with what everything, doing, so. that, everything that happened from yeah. May 2015 onwards mm. would suggest that was always true mm-hmm. um, and solar installers have been struggling since really I mean sure. there was a, an 80% drop off in, in, in solar installs which led to a lot of um, businesses to collapse um, the MCS figures are always pointed to mm-hmm. um, it, it's, 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 a, it's a really quite sad state of affairs considering that mm. domestic solar has this hugely important role to play mm. utility scale yeah. solar has this hugely important role to play and the government was sitting on a really strategic industry which could have benefited everyone yeah and I think the own goal is that you know I mean obviously from our point of view a lot of the people we work with essentially our customers are the solar industry so I think there's, you know, that's something we need to declare obviously but at the same time for every one of those installers that went out of business you know even if you want to call it green crap or whatever there's a lot of consumers there that are being let down by that you know every single yeah, one of them will have had customers politically it doesn't seem that smart to keep doing it from a government point of view as well 
Um, but it also does mean, sort of coming back to what we were talking about earlier, it, it's difficult for the consumers to know what to trust. And it also makes it very, very difficult to um, coordinate the, um, to actually coordinate deployment of low carbon assets in terms of low carbon policy. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, so, yeah. so there's a real dual kick there that, that it's not helping policy to, to be so fragmented and at the same time it's definitely not helping consumers, you know. And you know, sometimes wonder if these days the point of politics is to keep consumers in the dark. Um, but certainly I'd hope not. Is this, is this a blackout joke? Is it? We <laughs> had, to, had to get there in the end, didn't we? So yeah, okay. So let's, let's not leave everyone in the dark on your favourite subject, Liam. Tesla. Do, do we get to talk about Tesla now? You don't get to call anyone <laughs> a sex offender, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> um, I've just got... So Listen, don't, don't make us take the uh, tweeting privileges away from you. There's, there's going to be a lawyer with a redacted klaxon. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, August 18th, yeah. Elon Musk tweets, yeah. Tesla Solar just relaunched. Let me know what you think. Mm-hmm. August 19th, Walmart sues Tesla <laughs> over rooftop fires. Yeah. August 20th, Elon Musk tweets, might make sense to have thousands of solar reflectors to warm Mars versus artificial suns. And he's, he's talking about doing that rather than nuking yeah. the planet. I mean, I think we, I, th- I hope he's talking about two separate things. Uh, this one. And, you know, I hope he hasn't become cynical and weird enough to the point that he's got that song playing the roof the, every time <laughs> something like this comes in but it's become really like leaving aside the kind of slightly eccentric behaviour of the CEO leaving, yeah. leaving that to one side from it because I know you love talking about that um, you know one other thing is that the, the Tesla Solar relaunch uh, did you have a look at the actual what the what the, so I mean I, I have to admit I've been busy doing a lot of other stuff but I had a quick look at the reservations site yeah there's nothing on there it's a hundred pounds which isn't I mean I guess you know to a journalist it's a lot of money but a hundred pounds it's affordable like you know yeah. so it's a hundred pounds I presume that's the same as what they did before with their thousand dollar car deposits yes yeah. for the Tesla Solar they're going all rental that side of it kind of makes sense, right? Um, we'll get in, can get into that later, but it's a hundred dollar deposit, uh, sorry, hundred pound deposit or a hundred dollar deposit or eleven thousand yen deposit in Japan. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> There's nothing there. It, it, it says you're entering into a contract with Tesla Energy for energy products. Sure. To actually get any visibility on what that's going to cost you and what the returns will be. There's absolutely nothing there. And it is kind of, it's getting to the point where people who comment pro-Tesla will just say, well, it's because you don't understand what's going on. Obviously. Obviously. Because uh, and all the rest of us will go, is it worth putting £100 down just in case? Because it's only £100. Yeah. Some of us will. There are still those people that put yeah. down deposits for the Tesla solar roof tile and... Yeah. They are nowhere to be seen apart right. from the Desperate Housewives. Yeah, and I just don't don't really understand the point of not making it clear to your customers what it is exactly you're getting. I mean, I maybe mean, they're taking a leaf out of the Apple credit card. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. um, 
I mean, look, yeah. Tesla just seemed to lurch from mm. one episode to the next at mm. Elon's whim at times. Yeah. And this, the, the Tesla solar fire case with Walmart is just another incident which just increasingly looks like Solar City was just an, a purchase which is just a massive, massive misstep for the company. Okay. And it's going to be really interesting to, to see how this mm. pans out and, and whether or not this will just be looked at as something that Tesla could have done without. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it at the time, 100, 110% made sense for them to have a solar company. Yeah. Obviously, 100%. Um, you know, obviously, uh, it's his cousin's company. He wasn't listed as a founder of the company, but Elon Musk apparently brainstormed the idea at some point um, and got it set up. So let me just play Tesla's advocate for a moment <laughs> here. It seems like production hell, notwithstanding, the car business is going pretty well. Yeah, yeah, they don't seem to, to be running out of money because, however things go, there seem to be efficient ways they can get investing, and there seem to be people who want to invest in them. So let's say they're not going to go out of business anytime soon. Their shares are something like two hundred and twenty dollars a share at the moment, which is a dip of about a third from their highest point about sure. a year or so ago, something like that, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, the old argument is that they are turning over twenty billion or so. Oh crap, is it a quarter or is it a year? <laughs> Put me on the spot here entirely. But, you know, people are investing in Tesla are projecting that that is going to increase, that's going pretty well. And the energy storage side of things, the deployments are getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, they just launched the Mega Pack, which is a three megawatt hour containerized modular unit. So those are positives, and the energy storage side of things is doing record figures. They could also argue, well, hang on, we did a phase of deploying a lot of solar. Now we're using energy storage to get leverage mm. on that and make the most out of it. Problem is, those aren't the kinds of explanations you get from the company. So even if you are you know, pro-Tesla, as some people are, you're left a little bit in the dark. Well, the, the, you only just direction. have to listen to some of the call, some of the conference calls that Elon's had with mm. investors and, mm. and analysts in the past where he's just been frankly belittling to mm-hmm. these people that are asking yeah. them some really quite valid questions yeah um, the 420 tweet about Tesla which Taking triggered it private a, right going private yeah going yeah. private that triggered a SEC investigation and now he has to have different representation at the board level to kind of if not rein him in then at least mm-hmm make the company seem a bit more sensible right um, could change things possibly mm-hmm. but if you strip the car business out which mm. is definitely going great guns at the moment mm. you can't help but feel that there are still question marks over it it's true and is it but it's fun that some of those questions get answered if you follow the Instagram feeds of pop stars <laughs> <laughs> that are hanging out around at Elon Musk that's been fun yeah no fair enough and on the storage side of things as well, um, yeah, I mean, God knows what's going on with the, um, the the panel deal with Panasonic and things like that. So yeah, I mean, just that's if, a bit of a mess. If anybody, if anybody yeah. wants to know anything about that, just mm-hmm. ring our 
illustrious news editor Mark Osborne and he'll be happy definitely he'll be happy to cheer off about that contract. definitely I mean before we wrap let's let's do a quick quick plug of what Mark's been doing in the R&D space and stuff but yeah just a, a last note on that Tesla bit if I can Sure, cool. So yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of the ambitions in energy storage, like uh, so, the grid scale stuff is one thing, and you know, as you might have gathered, VPPs is something I like to bang on about. So the Powerwall was launched uh, 2015, same year Liam joined Solar Media. Is right, and um, it was touted with the ability to join virtual power plants, and it was a long time from that before we actually started to see things happen. So. Last week we blogged about in Australia, Tesla's virtual power plant in South Australia is growing and growing. Um, But you've got to say that actually Tesla's domestic rivals in the US are not slouching at all. So one market in the US that we're looking at is New England, um, a set of markets really. But they're opening up and Sunrun, so which is now, crikey, let's ask Mark about this again. But I think Sunrun is now the leader in residential. It was Solar City a couple of years ago believe it's Sunrun. Sunrun is now getting capacity contracts for its, for its um, residential storage. So in New England, I believe it was Massachusetts with New England ISO, uh, do double check that on the site, they got a 20 megawatt capacity ca- uh, contract. You know, So that's kind of really building scale with virtual power plants very, very quickly. Um, and we'll see. I mean, for me, it's just disappointing that from a mission to decarbonize, Elon Musk got more sidetracked by the mission to Mars, which yep. is, I'm sure that's fun if I could afford to be involved in that. And being FK Twigs' boyfriend? Whatever, I don't even know who that is, I'm 40 <laughs> years old. <laughs> um, is, is it FK? I thought it was Grimes. Ah, it probably is. Someone please write in yeah. and let us know. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, so even in terms of the energy storage, um, Tesla's gonna have to be ambitious to keep scaling that up and let's see how that play plays out really I guess um, yeah I guess that's pretty much all from yeah I mean yeah. just just to recap from my end really um, there's plenty going on in the UK market we're all decamping to Birmingham for the usual four days so that's Soda and Storage Live yeah formerly the artist formerly known as Soda Media Soda and Storage Live formerly known as Soda and Storage no, what was it called? Clean Solar Energy uh, UK. Solar Energy UK. Right, yes. right, right. right. Um, no longer our event, but we will still be there. Cool. Kind of lingering around, hopefully not like a bad smell, but <laughs> hopefully providing some kind of service. Right, so that's, um, yeah, so that's Solar and Storage Live, taking place uh, second week of next month. Yes, yeah. So um, September 17th to the 19th. Perfect. Nice one. Yeah. Uh, Coming up as well, internationally, we've got Solar Power International in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, coupled with Energy Storage International. Um, It's going to be really interesting to go see a part of the US that, you know, to be honest, mainstream media doesn't often report that much about. So we're seeing a lot more in the last few weeks about um, stuff that isn't happening in the usual suspects, New York, California, so on. Um, Are you coming along to that one? I'm not, I'm afraid. Are you not? No, we were... We were I heard a rumour. No, oh, I wanted to go see a real Salt Lake City game with you. Um, unfortunately, that, might have, to, that might have to wait, I'm afraid. Right, I'm, I'm busy yeah. working on PVTech yeah. Power 20. PVTech Power 20, which is the other thing we want to talk to you about. Should be out around the time this podcast drops. Um, that's our quarterly technical journal aimed primarily at the downstream global solar industry. 
Uh, but Liam and I, via current and energy storage news respectively, do contribute a section in there, storage and smart power. Always Which worth a read. Keeps us awake at night. Keeps us one day. I mean, you joke, but it really is at the <laughs> moment. <laughs> um, and yeah, so look forward to getting through to that. And obviously, you can follow us Twitter, our website's current, so it's currentnews.co.uk, energy storage news, solar power portal, and PV tech. Thanks very much for listening. Um, if you have any feedback at all, please do get in touch. We'll be working on the format of this podcast as it goes. So if it's been a painful listen, do point it out and we'll, uh, we'll just do less work. It is Grimes, by the way. It is Grimes, out, by the way. Out, out okay. by well, of all the things we needed to fact check. <laughs> all right, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>